Good morning. Happy Father's Day to all our fathers. <clears throat> Kaboom! My grandfather and uncle had just sat down for lunch at the bottom of their coal mine when the rock wall across from them exploded, showering them with rocks and dirt. When the air cleared, two other miners came out of the gloom. Now this happened during the Depression. There weren't any safety nets. No coal meant no food. They had dug and tunneled for months, only to run into another mining company hundreds of feet underground, men who wanted the same coal as they did. And everyone was armed with picks, shovels, pry bars, six-foot-long drills, and dynamite. It was an explosive situation. It was a scene ripe for conflict. Now, conflict is nothing new. Cain was jealous of Abel, and so he killed off the competition in the worship arena. Joseph's brothers had a jealousy problem, so they sold him into slavery. Sarah had a jealousy problem. She hated Hagar for obeying Sarah's own bidding, and that set off a feud that continues to this day. And then there's Esau and Jacob, whose conflicts set off wars and pillaging for hundreds of years. But we're better people than that, right? Ever since we've industrialized warfare, we've become peaceful and content. The Middle East is no longer a powder keg of asymmetric warfare. We never have to fear another great land war in Europe, and Taiwan has nothing to fear. Good thing we have peace at home. I mean, it's not like we have mass shootings by a lone gunman. And I can't remember the last time we had riots in our cities. And isn't it great how everyone loves the police? And good riddance to those pesky political divisions, thanks to that friendly competition between Trump and Biden. And we can all appreciate the kind tone used in discussions on the internet. Well, at least we have peace within the church. I mean, it's not like we have heresies from our Arianism to Universalism. And yeah, I, I looked, but I couldn't find one with a Z. And it's not like the church has splintered into hundreds of denominations. And thank goodness that the PCA has been spared conflict over things like Side B Christianity. And session members, we never disagree, do we, Chris? Well, at least our homes are free from conflict. As long as my wife, Trish, does what I want, and she never touches the thermostat, <laughs> there are no problems there. And I'm sure none of us have ever disappointed our parents or have been disappointed by our children. Okay, tongue-in-cheek aside, our first parent's sin has affected all of our communal interactions. So what are we to do? Do the scriptures help us resolve conflicts? Well, I think they do. And we'll see that today in 1 Samuel 26. And so our title for today is Godly Conflict Resolution. And I have three points. I will live peacefully. I will pursue an errant brother. And I will trust in God's sovereignty. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, you know how every time that I have the privilege to preach to your people, I'm really preaching to myself. This is even more true today. 
And so I ask that you would bless this message, that you would open our hearts, especially mine, to your word. I ask that you would seal your word in our hearts, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our first point, then, is I will live peacefully. Please listen to the inspired, the inerrant, the infallible, and the authoritative word of God in 1 Samuel 26, verse 1. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding on the hill of Hachalah, which is before Jessamon? If I want to live peacefully, I must not stir up trouble like the Ziphites. In verse 1, the Ziphites go to Saul to squeal on David. Now Ziph was 30-plus miles away from Gibeah, where Saul maintained his capital. And in those days, people usually walked, and they didn't have holiday inns along the way. Yet, the Ziphites make two separate trips in order to squeal on David. The first was in 1 Samuel 23, and now they're at it again. And so we have to ask, why? Why would the men of Ziph make a 60 to 70 mile journey on foot twice? Well, we know that David and his men protected shepherds in that area from raiders. And in Psalm 54, David describes the Ziphites like this. For strangers have risen against me, and violent men have sought my life. They have not set God before them. So Psalm 54 tells us that the Ziphites were evil and violent men. And I think these evil and violent men are the raiders of the shepherds. And they want to get rid of David so that they can get back to raiding. But they don't want to risk themselves. And so they egg on Saul by stirring up trouble. They push Saul's buttons. And we all know it's pretty easy to figure out what upsets another person and then take advantage of that to start trouble. They knew that they could incite Saul to violence. You can just hear them sidling up to Saul. Hey, Saul, what's with that David guy? What's that guy doing with 600 men hiding in the hills like an outlaw? And didn't he organize a vigilante patrol at Kayla? He's usurped the king's justice. Your justice, Saul. If he was on the up and up, he'd come in out of the wilderness and dismiss that private army. And that's all it took for Saul to repent of his repentance in chapter 24. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay. You wouldn't believe <laughs> Hello? <laughs> you wouldn't believe that I'm a programmer. Trish has to do the remote control because I can't figure it out. <clears throat> okay. And that's all it took for Saul to repent of his repentance in chapter 24. The Ziphites fanned the flames of Saul's jealousy into an unrighteous anger. Now make no mistake, Saul was jealous of David. David killed Goliath while Saul hid in his tent. The people sang songs about Saul killing his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Men, including his own son Jonathan, were drawn to David. While men who heard that Saul was to be anointed as king asked, how can God choose that worthless man? 
And then God rejected Saul and named David as the next king. The Ziphites took advantage of those deep-seated jealousies that Saul nurtured in his heart. In Romans 16, Paul tells us, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances, contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them, for such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Saul should have kept an eye on the godless Ziphites. He should have turned away from them and their rumors and innuendo, but he allowed himself to be deceived. You know, he might not have been able to control what the Ziphites said, but he could control his thoughts about what they said. But rather than question the motives of the Ziphites, he took their report at face value. They intimated that David was plotting against the throne and Saul bought it hook, line, and sinker. He played right into the Ziphites' hands. and He allowed himself to be stirred up. Here are two important facts. David spared Saul's life in chapter 24 when he could have taken it. And David swore not to kill any of Saul's descendants when he came to the throne. I wonder if Saul remembered any of those, in fact, of those facts. Or did he stew in his own juices? You can just picture him sitting on his throne thinking, if only I hadn't gone into that cave. We were so close to finding him and ending the problem once and for all. But perhaps he should have thought about these things. God has allowed me to serve as king, at least for a time. David was right to hide, given the number of times I've tried to kill him. David could already be on the throne, but he spared me. David didn't anoint himself. Samuel anointed him because of my sin. But I don't think he was thinking about those things. He allowed his jealousies to rise up. So Saul arose. Verse 2. So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having with him 3,000 chosen men of Israel to search for David in the wilderness of Ziph. Now it's not like he didn't have time to think this through. He didn't have 3,000 men standing by. He had to send runners to call the men to gather, and then those men had to prepare and report to Gibeah. And 3,000 men don't go running off into the wilderness without supplies. You know, sometimes when we have a fight, we take people with us. Either directly or indirectly, we ask people to take sides. Saul asked 3,000 men to take his side. Surely, David was the commander of most before he escaped to the wilderness. Many of these men knew David, and they knew that David was anointed as the next king. Many of them had pursued David in 23 and 24, and they knew that David had spared Saul. They heard Saul confess that David was more righteous than himself. Yet, they followed Saul into a new hunt for David. No matter our loyalties to those we love, we should not follow blindly into the sin of another. Angry people look for confirmation of their anger from family and friends, and all too often we give it, but we don't have to. Those 3,000 soldiers could have said no. They could have said, hey, we'll come fight the Philistines, but we're not going to hunt down a brother. 
we too must remember that all of us are saved by the same Lord. There's a hymn called Christ Before Me. Listen to this verse. Christ on my right hand, Christ on my left hand, Christ all around me, shield in the strife, Christ in my sleeping, Christ in my sitting, Christ in my rising, light of my life. Now, if that's true for you and me, isn't it also true for brothers with whom we have disputes? And so if I want to live peacefully, I will not take sides in disputes between quarreling brothers. Disputes happen. But we can agree to disagree. We can decide to get along. In chapter 24, David and Saul appear to have settled their issues. Now, I doubt they were going to send Christmas cards to each other. But a truce was established. They were going to get along. And so imagine David's surprise when Saul and 3,000 men come marching down the road. Three and four. Saul camped in the hill of Hachalah, which is before Jessamon beside the road. And David was staying in the wilderness when he saw Saul came after him into the wilderness. David sent out spies, and he knew Saul was definitely coming. Now David could have just assumed that Saul was after him again, but he didn't. Rather than assume he sent out spies to learn why Saul was in the neighborhood, we shouldn't make assumptions either about the actions of others. Before we take offense, we must be certain of the facts. See, Saul had every right to take 3,000 men and march through Israel. The Philistines may have been making a move nearby. Saul as king may have wanted to reassure the people that the army was there to protect them from foreign raiders. But to David's disappointment, the spies confirmed that Saul was out for his blood. Do you want to live peacefully? Don't stir up trouble. See, I should avoid pushing someone's buttons. I should watch my tone and use a soft voice. The ends never justify the means. So I must avoid using evil means to get what I want, including outright lies and lies by omission. When you're tempted to stir someone up, ask yourself, would the Lord approve? Do you want to live peacefully? Don't get stirred up. Be content in life. Am I breathing? Has the Lord saved me? Am I part of the body of Christ? Everything else is gravy. And I should apply wisdom to what I hear. Ask if what I hear is true. Ask if what I hear pushes my buttons. If watching the news stirs me up, maybe I should stop watching the news. You want to live peacefully? Don't recruit people to your side. Don't join in fights. Make sure of the facts. See, most people don't walk around wondering how they can offend other people. They're just living their life. Maybe we should interpret their words and actions in that way. But when someone intentionally attacks I will take action. And that brings us to our second point. I will pursue an errant brother. Five and six. David then arose and came to the place where Saul had camped. And David saw the place where Saul lay, and Abner the son of Ner, the commander of his army. And Saul was lying in the circle of the camp, and the people were camped around him. And then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite, and to Abishai, the son of Sarah, Joab's brother, saying, Who will go down with me to Saul in the camp? And Abishai said, I'll go down with you. 
And so David and Abishai came to the people by night. And behold, Saul lay sleeping inside the circle of the camp with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the people were lying around him. In chapter 23, David and his men scurried away from Saul, and they ended up hiding in a cave, almost surrounded. In this chapter, Saul arose in anger and jealousy. But David arose too, intending to put an end to this nonsense once and for all. And so he goes to Saul's camp under the cover of darkness, and he sees Saul and the entire army are sleeping, and he considers his approach to Saul. The last time that Saul came after him, it ended when Saul realized that David had held his life in his hand. Maybe Saul thought that was a fluke. An unfortunate happenstance to go off into a cave without guards, a cave that was already occupied by his enemy. So this time, David decides to show Saul that it was not a fluke by making a bold move. He decides upon an object lesson by sneaking into the camp, and not just David, but one of his men. See, I think Abishai serves as a witness to further reinforce the lesson. Not just one man was able to get to Saul, but two. And they were able to do so despite Abner and the army. And if I may, I'd like to say a brief word about the Scriptures. See, many commentators use this chapter to cast suspicion upon the inerrancy of Scripture, whether they mean to or not. They take the view that the story in chapter 23 and 24 and the story in chapter 26 are so similar that there was really only one event. But we've seen several differences. And I think the decision not to flee but to confront an errant brother is a key differentiator. And so we reject those views that place human reasoning above the plain reading of the Scriptures. Sometimes, the conflicts that we have with people call for object lessons. Sometimes they call for extended discussion or just an arm around the shoulder. But no matter what approach we take to conflicts, the one aim should be to reestablish peace. And David, the man who knew so much conflict, knows this. He wrote about it in Psalm 133. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. So David and Abishai take a risk, and they sneak into the camp. Now any one of those 3,000 men could have woken up and cried out in alarm, but no one did. And Saul is at David's mercy once again. Verse 8, Then Abishai said to David, Today, God has delivered your enemy into your hand. Now, therefore, please let me strike him with the spear to the ground with one stroke, and I will not strike him the second time. Abishai jumps to the unwarranted conclusion that God wants them to dispatch Saul then and there. Give the signal, boss. I won't need to strike twice. But Abishai is basing his conclusion on circumstance, And that's a dangerous thing to do. See, the scriptures say, thou shalt not kill. And yet, he's eager to murder another member of the people of God. Now, before we get too judgmental over Abishai, remember what Jesus said about the deeper meaning of that commandment? 
Matthew 5, 21-22. You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Now, few of us go after each other with spears. There, There may be some, but not too many, I hope. Instead of spears, though, how often do we use harsh words to destroy the character of someone else? Verse 9, But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be without guilt? David has a high view of the Lord's anointed and the Lord's law. He knows that God has not yet turned over the kingdom, and that Saul, no matter his faults, needs to be honored as the Lord's anointed. And so he protects Saul from death at the hand of Abishai. Now, none of us here have been called to be the Lord's anointed. But you know what we are called? First Peter 2. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And so we should hold each other in the same high regard. And just as He protected the life of Saul, He also protects Abishai from committing a grave sin. He asks, who can do such a thing and be without guilt? You know, I wonder if we've lost that sense of dread over the guilt that comes from sinning against the Lord. I'm forgiven. Jesus paid it all. And indeed he did. But it's not a license for sin. David tells Abishai that God's revealed will is not to kill. And Abishai chose to not sin. And so they take the water and the spear in order to make a point. Well, David then proceeds to direct confrontation He confronts Abner in 13 through 16. Then David crossed over to the other side and stood on top of the mountain at a distance with a large area between them. And David called to the people and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer Abner? And Abner replied, Who are you who calls to the king? And so David said to Abner, Are you not a man? And who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not guarded your Lord the king? For one of the people came to destroy the king your Lord. This thing you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, all of you must surely die. Because you did not guard your Lord, the Lord's anointed. Now see where the king's spear is and the jug of water that was at his head. Abner has taken over David's role as commander. And David charges him with dereliction of duty. He says, Abner, you're the guy. There isn't a greater man in all of Israel. You're the one who's charged with protecting the king, and you failed. And so now we see another reason that David chose Abishai to come with him. He says, someone came into the camp to destroy the king, and you did nothing, but I protected the king. You failed, but I The guy that Saul is still trying to kill protected the king. You want proof? 
Look around for that spear and jug that was at Saul's head. You ain't going to find it, pal. He could have just spoken to Saul. But I think his purpose was larger than just resolving the conflict between himself and Saul. See, he's actually in conflict with 3,001 men. He's to be the next king of 3,000 of those 3,001. And so no matter what they have heard or what they think about David, he needs to set the record straight. So he's telling Abner and the other 2,999 men that he is the true protector of the king and that he is the one with pure motives. And of course, Saul's listening to this exchange. It's still dark. They couldn't see who was calling into the camp. But David sang for Saul when those furies would come upon him. And so Saul knows this voice, 17 through 21. Then Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord the king. And he also said, Why then is my lord pursuing his servant? For what have I done? Or what evil is in my hand? Now therefore... Please let my Lord the King listen to the words of his servant. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. But if it's men, cursed are they before the Lord, for they have driven me out today, so that I would have no attachment with the inheritance of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. Now then, do not let my blood fall to the ground away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to search for a single flea, just as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. David immediately gets to the heart of the problem. What have I done that you're after me? But look what he says next. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. Doesn't that sound odd? If Saul is pursuing him, wouldn't David want to know how he offended Saul? But David asks, what have I done to offend the Lord? Now, as far as we know, David is blameless towards Saul. He's done everything properly, even living life as an outlaw instead of causing a civil war. It's Saul, not David, who needs to make amends. But David holds out the possibility that God in his providential care, is stirring Saul up because of some other sin of David. And that's why he offers to make an offering to the Lord. Likewise, when conflict comes to us, we must be sensitive to the unseen hand of God's providence working within our life and that of others. The second possibility David mentions is that some men have stirred up Saul against him. And David curses them if they've brought about his excommunication from the church by forcing him to flee to another country. Listen to his plea to Saul in verse 20. Now then, do not let my blood fall to the ground away from the presence of the Lord. The presence of the Lord. Here's a guy who's been on the run from the king of Israel, but not just him. He's got a family, 600 men. And the families of those 600 men, all counting on him to protect them from Saul. And what's his chief concern? The freedom to worship the Lord. I trust that the Holy Spirit will ignite such a love of worship within us, so strong that it blocks out the conflicts that we have with others. 
Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5? Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. But don't walk out now. If If you're harboring a grudge, if you're on the slow boil, if you're red in the face angry with another brother, fix it before next Sunday. And then David points out how Saul is humiliating himself. What king searches for a flea? What king chases a single partridge that runs along the ground until it falls over with exhaustion? I wonder how many of our fights and disagreements are just as humiliating to us. How does it look to the Lord when His people are at each other's throats? How does it look to Him when we give the silent treatment to each other? We would do well to remember that Christ is between us and all of our interactions are observed by Him. Well, His words get through to that jealous heart. 21. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will not harm you again because my life was precious in your sight this day. Behold, I have played the fool and have committed a serious error. Also, to Saul's credit, he repents. When we are confronted by truth, we can choose to be stubborn. Or as Saul did, we can choose to repent. Did Saul really repent? Well, we can't read another person's heart. So we must assume the best about the other person and forgive. And as a token that David forgives, he returns the spear. But look what he says next. The Lord will repay each man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered you into my hand today, but I refuse to stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Now behold, as your life was highly valued in my sight this day, so may my life be highly valued in the sight of the Lord. And may he deliver me from all distress. You see, Saul may or may not value David's life in the future. But David is confident that the Lord will value it. And a chastened Saul says, Blessed are you, my son David. You will both accomplish much and surely prevail. So David went on his way, and Saul returned to his place. And so we see an errant brother repent. David's purpose was accomplished, and they each went their separate ways. And that brings us to our third point. I will trust in God's sovereignty. You thought I skipped over verses 10 through 12, but I just switched the order. 10. David also said, As the Lord lives, surely the Lord will strike him, or his day will come that he dies, or he will go down into battle and perish. David makes this statement when Abishai offers to pin Saul to the ground. Now, in reading this story, did you ever wonder where David's confidence came from? See, it appears to me that it came from a deep-seated trust in God's sovereignty. David believed that the Lord had truly anointed him as the next king. Therefore, it was going to happen sooner or later. The only impediment was Saul. And so David says there's three ways this can end. The Lord's going to strike him down where he stands. He'll die of old age or he'll die protecting Israel. 
None of those possibilities are under David's control. Whatever the future holds, it's not for us to know. And so David was content to wait upon the Lord's pleasure. He lived in the present by following God's revealed will, like thou shalt not kill. So David didn't have to murder Saul to gain the throne. He trusted that God's, in God's word that he would be king. How about you and me? Do we have the same confidence that God's plan is the perfect plan, no matter our part within it? Do we trust that our current travails are for our ultimate good? And are we content to wait upon him? Verse 12. So David took the spear and jug from beside Saul's head, and they went away. But no one saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep, because a sound sound sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. Did you notice that last part about a sound sleep? The Holy Spirit inspired the author to include this detail, and I think he did it to show us that when we truly desire to end conflict, God prepares hearts and minds. And I must proceed on that basis. See, it does not appear that David knew ahead of time that God would cause this deep sleep. He simply trusted that if he did what was right, God would bless, and God did. How sad that their reconciliation ended with each going their own way. They were never to meet again. And in a few short chapters, Saul meets his end defending Israel. Well, things were pretty tense in the bottom of that mine shaft. Guy on the right, that's my grandfather. And that's my dad in the middle. Um, I guess my sister got the brains and the looks, so I'm not sure what happened with this generation. But um, uh, so he was the one in the mine. And uh, uh, as the dust settled, my grandfather invited the other men to lunch. And when lunch was over, my grandfather stood up and he said, you go that way, we go this way. And that ended the great Treverton underground mine conflict. Agreeing to disagree, going their separate ways. That's what David and Saul did. Definitely better than open conflict, but not ideal. And thankfully not the way that God operates. In Hebrews 1, the author quotes Psalm 110, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And he applies it to Jesus. So who are Jesus' enemies? Well, Paul says in Romans 5.10 that we are. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Outside of Christ, we are enemies of God, but God does not say, you go that way, I'll go this way. Just a few verses earlier, Paul says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Our God pursues his people. He sent his son as a propitiation for our sin. Jesus has paid the debt owed by our transgressions against God's law. And more than that, he lived the perfect life of righteousness that none of us could. He fulfilled the covenant given to Adam on our behalf, and he doesn't stop there. He doesn't say, the gate's open, come on in. No. 
No. His Spirit regenerates our heart and it turns it from a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. He makes us spiritually alive. He gives us the very faith that we need to be in Christ. And in John 6, we see that the Father also actively pursues us. 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. What do you think that word draw means? Attract? Does the Father attract people to Jesus? According to Strong's concordance, draw here is to drag, specifically to draw by inward power, to lead, impel. And Dr. Sproul likens it to drawing water out of a well, which doesn't come up by itself, but is pulled along. Our God pursues his people whose names have been written in the book of life. Have you been drawn to Jesus? Are you in the process of being drawn to Jesus? Or are you still spiritually dead, an enemy of God? If so, I plead with you today to repent and believe. I plead with you to take advantage of that greatest reconciliation that the world has ever known. And once you're at peace with God, you can resolve the other conflicts in your life by living peacefully, pursuing an errant brother, and trusting in God. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for David. And thank you for your word that directs our thoughts to you. I ask, Lord, that you help us to consider all of our relationships and how to bring godly principles to bear on them so that you're glorified. Amen.